It's November 27th, 2023. And Ajahn Kurudamo, myself, Ajahn Sadiro, Samanera Himiko, and Agarga RJ just returned yesterday from this week-long Thanksgiving retreat. I think we calculated it was the 33rd Thanksgiving retreat. That's uh, maybe the only one ever that was canceled was 2017 when there was the fires and the Angela Center where we used to hold the retreat burned down. So in uh, this happening, so this retreat was happening before Abayagiri was founded, starting in either 1990 or 1991. And these monastic retreats that we do, a lot of what we're teaching is just basic stuff, just the basic day-to-day -day life, how we can reflect on things that are happening in our daily lives. And it's all very ordinary. And how to try to make the mind more peaceful. And each retreat will be slightly different based on just what's coming up for the teachers and you know, where people are at in the retreat. So there's these Q&A sessions and people can write questions down and put them in a bowl and each day. So as uh, Ajahn Kurudama, myself, Ajahn Sadiro, we're trading off answering questions. And uh, one thing that was a little bit unusual about this retreat that just passed was Normally on day one, there's not many questions, and people don't have many questions yet, and the bowl was just completely filled on day one with questions on this retreat. And there's a progression of retreat, so the questions on the first couple of days is all about things that are in people's happening in people's lives, whether it's work, family, so that's what happens the first couple of days on retreat is we sit to meditate and then whatever's happening in our lives, whatever we're doing is, is really coming up strongly in the mind. Day three, four, five, the mind is starting to settle and, and the questions will be more about meditation practice. And then the final day or two is more about people asking more about, you know, how do I integrate this into my daily life when I leave the retreat? How do I take this with me? So these things are just very ordinary. And a lot of what we end up talking about is just ordinary life. And some of the most useful and powerful teachings end up being just around how do we relate to things in a way that accords with Dhamma in our ordinary life dealing with just the states that arise, just acknowledging that the body and mind aren't ideal conditions. There is no ideal condition, actually. So the, we experience th things like emotions and tiredness. Sometimes we have energy, sometimes we're tired. And then when we're tired, we might think, well, we're not in this kind of ideal state. So what do I do with that? And we might try to think maybe it's a problem being tired or exhausted or the mind might not be that clear and we might think well I'm, I'm a meditator so my mind's supposed to be clear 
or we might have some sort of desire arising in the mind or anger or some sort of agitation. We might think that's, that's wrong. Things shouldn't be that way. But that's just, that's just how it is. These things arise and the body and mind are not in this kind of ideal state. So I, I can remember having these romantic ideas about monastic life and about being a practitioner. And when I first was uh, getting interested in meditation and started thinking about wanting to be a monk or be some sort of yogi, originally I imagined myself as a cave yogi in the Himalayas before thinking about becoming a monk. And the image I was getting in my mind was kind of this, almost like, like a movie, like, you know, just some sort of really remote kind of abiding in, in the Himalayas somewhere, really, really far away from everybody and everything. And then I, I remember going and trying to live in the forest for a week by myself, and I couldn't do it longer than a day because actually doing it isn't the same as that romantic image in the mind. Actually doing it, and it's a completely different experience. It's, it's not at all like what I thought it would be. So it's like the when you go and live on the remote side of a mountain, that side becomes close. It's no longer remote. Yeah. So there's this idea of being remote or being in extreme solitude, but then we're there. This body and mind is there. So I could see for myself wanting to really just get away from this body and mind, but there's no getting away from it. Uh, just wanting to be done with suffering, but there's no being done with it. It's always just there with us. So then what we come back to then is just these very ordinary things. How do we relate to our body and mind? How do we train our body, speech, and mind each day? Just uh, going about our daily, thing, our daily tasks, our whatever work we do. If we're living in the monastery, then whatever we're doing in the monastery, you know, how do we just train this body, speech, and mind within the daily living? And over time, these, uh, these wholesome qualities build up. And when we practice every day, then, and we're thinking about Dhamma as much as possible, and really we're kind of trying to train ourselves, then yeah, eventually the, eventually things get, start to get a bit better and the, and the mind starts to get trained. I'm actually very tired right now, so uh, might end up wandering off on a couple different tracks with with this teaching. Uh, so depending on uh, whatever else comes up, uh, thoughts about generosity are coming up, and also uh, that's one thing where we we might do a retreat and the mind calms down and, and might become very still during the meditation. And we might think that it's actually from the meditation, but these things don't just come out of nowhere. We have to really plant a lot of causes for them to happen. So 
generosity is one of those causes. And this is a link that the Buddha makes, which it's not always readily apparent, that if our mind becomes peaceful during a period of retreat, one of the main causes of that is generosity done before that. So before we do a retreat, it's skillful to perform acts of generosity. Or I remember hearing this teaching in Thailand that if your mind isn't becoming peaceful, try to be more generous. And I didn't make those links at first when, when I started practicing. So later on, it became a bit more obvious that generosity you know, followed by a period of retreat, that's, that's really the way to do it. So why is that? You know, why, does, why does generosity lead to uh, peaceful states of mind during a retreat? And I think a lot of it is, is we're actually learning how to let go. With generosity, we're learning how to be less selfish, so less self-centered or self-centric, as I like to think about it. And we become more other-centric. So we're, we're actually developing qualities like empathy and caring about others, not just caring about ourselves, not just caring about me and my practice. We're actually caring about others. So we're actually coming out of our heads and not focusing on ourselves so much. So then the meditation becomes much more clear when the meditation is less self-centered. Because we can, when we meditate, we can become very self-centered. That's not very peaceful when we're self-centered. The, the sense of self, ultimately, it's a reference point. And the Dhamma, with the Dhamma, there's no reference. The, the Dhamma itself is the reference, but it's not a center. It's not like the sense of self where it's a very tight, just where it's a tight point that's very limiting and exclusive. So the, the Dhamma, we talk about the Dhamma having no reference point. It's expansive, all-encompassing, spacious, powerful. So, so when we come out of ourselves or we're, we're less self-centric, self-centered in the meditation, can change the experience quite a bit, and generosity is one of the causes of that, of, uh, of that to arise, that, that experience. Also, as we practice, uh, in the path of practice, various things can happen, and there are various pitfalls that we have to be careful of. And one that I was kind of reflecting on today was, as we practice, some, there is a phenomenon that can happen where we actually we actually become more refined in our preferences. You know, we, we actually, we might experience some sort of peace and well-being and stillness, but then there's this unwholesome state that can creep in where we actually then try to shift everything in our external life to protect that peace and stillness. And so our comfort zone becomes much smaller, actually. And we have to have much more specific conditions around us all the time. And our preferences become much more refined. And sometimes it can actually become 
difficult to stay in that type of a comfort zone that becomes smaller and smaller. And that's, that's, it's very easy for that to happen as we practice, especially as we practice many years. That type of a state can actually creep in very easily. And we should be aware of it, and we do need to catch that kind of thing because that's the opposite of Kanti. That's the opposite of developing this Kanti Barami, this patient endurance that Lumpur Chao would speak about. So if things are heading in the proper direction, then our comfort zone should actually become bigger and we should actually learn how to become more okay with unpleasantness when it arises and that every state arising being more and more okay with it rather than having to protect this very unstable sense of peace and happiness that we've achieved maybe through the through a good meditation so when we develop this sense of expansiveness and this this seems to be a hallmark of a lumpur child lumpur sumedho tradition this sense of expansiveness and expanding our comfort zone to really include any ideally any state so whether states are pleasant or unpleasant, then this expanded comfort zone actually really encompasses, it can eventually encompass everything to the point that whatever we experience, whatever comes our way, it's not gonna shake us. And there's not gonna be any sense of worry or having to protect some sort of very, very small, uh, narrow comfort zone. And that's the stability and, and unshakability that comes from, from that kind of expansiveness. So that you know, we can experience things like tiredness and, and it's okay. We can experience criticism and it's okay. We can experience praise and we won't become lost in it. Uh, we can be around people we like and we can be around people we might dislike and it's okay. You know, we can learn from every situation. We can be in the monastery or outside of the monastery and it's okay. We can be healthy or sick and it's okay. So once we talk about a state like that, that's very expansive, then it's obvious that that's, there's no fear in that state. It's stability, confidence, fearlessness. Because anything that arises, it's okay. It's good. It's all good. And uh, we're, we're good if we're there. And, and sometimes in the course of the practice, we have all these precepts so that, you know, there's the five precepts of the lay practitioners, the eight precepts, the renunciate precepts, which you've, you've taken this evening. And then there's the 10 precepts of the novices, the uh, 227 precepts of the bhikkhus. And so we do have all these precepts. And so 
it's to be expected that we'll make mistakes from time to time. And the precepts really, they're the final arbiter of, of our practice in terms of uh, staying in the monastery. So for the bhikkhus, like we use the precepts as that's the standards of behavior for being in the monastery. So whether we like somebody or dislike somebody, it doesn't really matter so much whether we're annoyed by somebody or really happy with how somebody acts. Doesn't really matter so much, you know, as long as they're keeping the precepts. So the precepts, the Vinaya is the arbiter of who can stay here, who can be in the Sangha. It's not who I like, who I dislike. If, if, uh, If it was just about who the teachers like and who the teachers dislike, then we wouldn't have what we have here today. We wouldn't have this beautiful community, a very, uh, a very diverse community. And because there is that sense of expansiveness, you know, we, we, Longport Cha has trained our own teachers to not buy into those mental states to say, well, I, I just want to be around this type of person and not this other type of person. So that's, that's very much the way of the world. Uh, I only want to be surrounded by people who have the same political views as me. I only want to be surrounded by people who have the same interests as me. Of course, we all, we are surrounded by people who have the same interests because we're all interested in Dhamma. So there is that. But just looking at that, that very worldly mindset of, of wanting to be surrounded by just people and things that accord with my preferences, accord with my desires, it's very convincing. The mind can be very tricky, very convincing. The mind can even use things like phrases from the suttas to try to justify our desires. That's very tricky. It's like that. Lumpur Cha liked to use the example of the uh, the monk that uh, had memorized most of the Buddha's teachings and uh, yet hadn't actually realized the Dhamma, but he had memorized all these teachings and he could speak most of the Buddha's teachings from memory. This is when the And then, uh, but he knows for himself that he hasn't actually realized the teachings, even though he's memorized so many scriptures. And, uh, and uh, then he, he thinks, well, you know, I, even though I've memorized all the teachings, I haven't realized them, so I uh, need to kind of do something about this. So this is, uh, he goes to, I think he, I can't remember if he goes to the Buddha or he goes to an Arhant. And uh, I think he goes to the Buddha and the Buddha says, welcome, empty scripture. And he's, oh, he's calling me empty scripture. What's that all about? And he's like, yeah, you're, uh, you're empty scripture because you've memorized all these teachings, but you haven't really 
contemplated and realized them for yourself. So, so it's, it doesn't have a deep meaning for you. So, uh, he ends up having to take an arhat novice as his teacher to kind of humble himself because he's memorized so many, so many suttas, he's not humble. So he has to actually humble himself by taking refuge with an arhat novice. And so this, this arhat novice then uh, says, okay, well, I have to test this guy. So he has him walk into a lake. He says, okay, walk, in, walk into this lake over here and, uh, and just don't stop until I tell you to. So this, this monk is walking into this lake. Venerable Empty Scripture is walking into the lake and uh, he's kind of, oh, what's going on here is up to my stomach, up to my chest, up to my neck. But he said, I can't stop, so I have to keep walking. So it's getting deeper and deeper and then the water kind of gets up to his nose and then the, the novice is like, okay, come back, come back. I can teach you now. And uh, he gives him this uh, meditation of the termite mound, of a lizard in the termite mound. And the termite mound has six holes. And so, uh, so the teaching is if you plug five of the holes you have to you have to catch the lizard, so uh, you have to plug five of the holes, and then and then you wait at the the hole that's still open till the lizard comes out. And so the analogy being that you have you practice sense restraint the for the eye, sense restraint of the ear, sense restraint of the nose, strength, sense restraint of the tongue, sense restraint of the body, and then the mind. The mind is where the uh, lizard of ignorance comes out and then you can see it clearly. So sense restraint of those five, of those first five sense bases, it's, uh, the phrasing in the suttas is seeing a form with the eye, one does not give mind to its signs and features or give rise to longing and de dejection in reference to the world. Hearing a sound with the ear, one does not give rise to its, uh, pay attention to its signs and features or give rise to longing and de dejection in regard to the world and so on with the other sense bases. And uh, that's the, we call it sense restraint, but the word restraint is kind of a negative word and, and implies tension. So I like to think of it more as sense composure or composing the sense faculties. And when we do that, we're able to see the mind more clearly. And actually we can't, we might say we can catch ignorance or catch delusion or catch the defilements of the mind when they arise. But actually ignorance itself, when we see with mindfulness that, that seeing there, there's no seeing of ignorance because seeing is is the opposite of ignorance. So, uh, so ignorance is that lack of seeing, that lack of true knowledge. So, with something like the cultivation of mindfulness and clear awareness of our actions through our daily lives, the daily schedule for those of us here in the monastery, uh, there's the daily schedule. 
And uh, for those of us here and engaged in the daily schedule and when we're developing mindfulness and clear awareness and composing our sense faculties, i.e. training our body, speech, and mind, then we might start to catch things and see things quite a bit more clearly in the mind. And it's going to be very interesting. Uh, Lumpur Cha said it's like your mind can become like a still forest pool and all sorts of interesting animals that you haven't seen before come to drink from it. Yeah. But the mind remains still. But you'll start to see and notice, notice all sorts of things that you didn't see before. And we'll start to see that process of how the mind does become truly peaceful with planting seeds of generosity and, and precepts and then nourished with meditation, mindfulness, clear awareness, and cultivating these things over and over again. And we're, we're, uh, we're growing some really uh, important medicinal plants they're going to cure the mind of all sorts of ailments over time. Or we could use the image of, of, of our heart, the heart having like a black crust on the, or a poisonous crust on the outside of it, and we're, dip, we're dropping the heart into some strong astringent medicine that's going to soften that crust and eventually uh, kind of uh, cure the heart of its ailments. So that's uh, some of the things we're doing with the practice. Also just putting in a plug in to uh, be mindful of our comfort zone. Is it, is it expanding or is it contracting? You know, are we, is it becoming smaller and smaller, the, the circumstances we can feel comfortable in, or is it becoming bigger and bigger are we developing that kantibharami, that uh, patient endurance, where we can actually remain composed and, and stable, whatever states arise, whatever worldly conditions arise around us, whatever happens on the outside, can we remain unshakable on the inside you know, what, with whatever pleasantness or unpleasantness that arises for us. So with that, I, I wish everybody well for this evening, and I, I think that's probably enough for tonight. I'll leave it there. <laughs>